So I have divided our text, because we have about 10 verses to cover, I've divided it into three sections. Let's begin with section one, okay? Section one would be the believer's armor, as we've already said. That would be verses 14 through 17. It's here in that particular part of this body of text that Paul breaks these things down. I'll go ahead and read through it again. He says, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That's our first section. And in this section, Paul shows that believers armor, the believer's armor basically consists of six pieces. There's six pieces that he illustrates in here. I want to look at, take some time to look at each one of them. And the first one would be the belt of truth. The belt of truth in verse 14a, he says, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Now, the Roman soldier, because this is the illustration, Paul is basically, when he's writing this, he's very likely chained to a Roman soldier and staring at one. But a Roman soldier uh, wore a tunic, an outer garment that served as his, I would say, his primary clothing. Uh, it was usually made of a large square piece of material with holes cut out for the head and arms. It draped loosely over most of his body. And since the majority of ancient combat was hand-to-hand, um, a loose tunic would, uh, would basically, it had the potential of hindering or even endangering the soldier. And so you didn't want this sort of, you know, it was almost like a bag in a sense that had arms cut out and all this stuff, and you kind of got into this thing, but you didn't want it baggy and loose. You wanted it pulled taut and tight because if it were loose, it would stumble you up and these things. Think even of a karate gi. They always wear a belt around their waist. If you had the gi on without the belt, what would happen? You'd be wearing a bathrobe, you'd get your butt kicked. So it'd be similar to that. You have to kind of bind this thing up, all this clothing. And before battle, uh, the soldier would, would take and he would carefully cinch up all the loose parts Uh, between his legs, and then he would basically tuck everything that's loose into this belt that Paul is kind of causing us to envision here. So what is loose, you would have this belt, and you would tuck all the loose parts into the belt so everything was pulled taut against your body, which gave you full mobility. Now, the belt demonstrates the believer's readiness for war and stands for truth. So there's kind of the parallel. Truth is uh, aletheia in Greek, which basically refers to the content of that which is true. Knowing the content of God's truth is absolutely essential for the believer if he is to battle successfully against the schemes of the devil. Without knowing basic biblical doctrine and teaching, he is subject to what? Being carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. That's Ephesians 4.14. Aletheia, this word for truth here, can also refer to an attitude of truthfulness. And I think we talked about that in Ephesians about a chapter ago or so. It represents not only the the accuracy of specific truths, but also the quality of truthfulness. So Aletheia can have to do with God's truth in a general sense, but it can also be 
it can also have to do with you just being a truthful person and telling the truth. And, and I think that that seems to be the primary meaning Paul has in mind in this particular verse. To be fastened with truth reveals an attitude of readiness and of genuine commitment. Okay, so it's almost like having this, instead of a belt, but you have like a belt, but it's not really you're putting on a belt, but you're putting on the truth in readiness for combat. Your life isn't loose, you know, you don't have encumbrances, you've got the truth that's kind of binding you up, or as Paul said, I think in his translation, when he read earlier, I think it says girding your loins, it's tightening up stuff. And that's kind of what Paul is saying here. It is the mark of, of the sincere believer who basically forsakes hypocrisy. So, so one way that we, we put on the belt of truth is by believing the truth and being truthful and forsaking hypocrisy, which is counter-truth. Like hypocrisy means to say one thing and do the other. So that's one way that this applies. Every encumbrance that might hinder his work, the soldier or the believer for the Lord, is gathered and tucked into his belt of truthfulness so that it will be removed and out of the way. And it kind of reminds me of when Paul talks about, you know, about an athlete who, you know, looses and rids himself of all these encumbrances, things that will slow him down as he runs the race. And I think that has to do with it, too. So Paul said this. He said, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. Uh, in other words, he doesn't get all wrapped up in the daily uh, turnings and things and mechanism of life, therefore adding all these encumbrances and things, getting bogged down in kind of the affairs of life rather than being wrapped up and girded with the truth. The, you know, uh, uh, the soldier of Christ doesn't do that. He doesn't get all wrapped up in the affairs of the day and the things of the day. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care about those things or deal with those things, but those things don't rule him, and he doesn't become sort of uh, overwhelmed by those things. He's about truth. He's about truthfulness. He removes those encumbrances. And so that's what Paul means here, I think, by, by the belt of truth. It's like removing the encumbrances and distractions and things and focusing on God's word and focusing being, on being honest and truthful wherever you go. And I think that's what it has to do with when you put that on by putting away with hypocrisy and putting on the truth itself. Secondly, the breastplate of righteousness, verse 14b and he just says, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, very simple. No Roman soldier would go into battle without his breastplate. Uh, a tough, sleeveless piece of armor that covered everything apart from his head and limbs. It was often made of leather or heavy, heavy, really heavy linen onto which were sewn overlapping pieces of metal molded or hammered to conform to the body so it would have some mobility, if you will, I guess. The purpose of that piece of armor is pretty obvious. It is to protect his lungs and his heart and his intestines and, and all of his vital organs. It's something that basically covers this whole area here. In Revelation 12.10, uh, the devil is called the accuser. I don't know if you've read that text, if you're familiar with that. Now, the devil has all sorts of little titles. He is, you know, he is the chief of all liars, if you will. He's the accuser. He's, you know, as it says in, in, in Revelation 12.10, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. However, he accuses them day and night before our God. And so, you know, what we see in Revelation 12.10 is that 
The devil is an accuser. He's constantly accusing the brethren, the brothers and sisters in Christ, before God Almighty. Uh, And what happens here is this breastplate of righteousness is meant to defend us against the accusations of the devil. So that's the spiritual uh, connotation. That's the spiritual meaning there. The breastplate protects us. It defends us against the devil who is our accuser. That's what it's meant to do in a spiritual sense. Now, righteousness here can be taken in two ways. It can refer to what in theology is called imputed righteousness. That's the righteousness of Jesus Christ reckoned to a Christian's account that enables him to stand before God. Maybe you've heard that before, but the only way that a person can stand before a perfectly righteous, holy, awesome, amazing, incredible God, the only way is that he has to have righteousness, and no person has their own righteousness. They need an alien righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. Jesus takes He took our sin upon his body and he traded, it's called the great exchange, he took our sin and exchanged it for his perfect righteousness. And so that's what imputed righteousness has to do with. So righteousness can be a reference to that here, the breastplate of imputed righteousness. I don't think that's where Paul's going. Or it can refer to what would be called practical righteousness, which has to do with our moment-by-moment obedience to God's word. Salvation is really a trip in that You know, we are perfectly righteous before the Father, but we must also pursue righteousness in our daily lives. And 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 we pursue it and 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 become righteous in a sense through our obedience to God's will and God's word. But it doesn't change our status with God. It doesn't affect the imputed righteousness. But believers must pursue righteousness. In fact, they have a new nature and it's what they long for and what they want to do. One of the ways that you know if you're a believer is that when you sin, you're convicted of that and you say, gosh, I did the wrong thing and I need to confess these sins. I want to be right before God. I want to be righteous. That's one of the very generic ways that you know. And so it can have to do with the imputed or it can have to do with the practical. And what happens is when we sin, you know, you're a a saved sinner, you're a saved saint and you have the imputed righteousness of Christ, but, but when you sin, even after the point of salvation, during sanctification, when you're becoming more and more like Jesus, when you pause and when you sin, when you fumble, when you make a mistake, what happens? The devil comes to us and he accuses us. And he comes and he says, look at you. You're not a real Christian. You're not a real believer. You're not really righteous. God is really ticked off of you. He hates you. He's going to destroy you. He can't stand you. Why don't you just give up? This is how he accuses us. And here's the crazy thing about it. The devil makes the same accusations. He makes these accusations against us when we sin. He makes the same accusations before the Father night and day. Look at your child. He's not righteous. Look what he claims to be a Christian, and look what he does. Look at how he fumbled. Look at how he treated his spouse. Look at how he got drunk that night and made a fool of it. Look at how he did. Now, I'm not promoting any of these things. I'm just saying these things happen. We make mistakes. We're still people. And the accuser comes and he accuses us and he makes these claims before the Father all the time. Look at this. He did the same thing with Job, did he not? Look at Job. He's not truly righteous. He doesn't truly love you. His deal is that he's just thrilled about all the blessings you've given him. And the father says, well, why don't you go ahead and remove all those things and I'll show you that he truly is righteous, that he truly does love me, that he truly is obedient. That's what the accuser does. And this breastplate of righteousness protects us against his accusations. It's great. It's a counter to these accusations. It's a counter to these things. In other words, when, when we 
are being accused by the devil, or even, well, I wouldn't say our conscience, because conscience can be a good thing if it's led by the Spirit, but I would say when we are accused, we have to, like, in a way in that moment, not become defeated or believe his lies or accusations, but we have to take up the breastplate of righteousness and remember who we are before God. I have the breastplate of righteousness. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And his allegations are false. Even though I stumble and fail, I work on those things. But his accusations are false because I, ha I have the breastplate of righteousness. And then we have to be even proactive in that we're pursuing righteousness through obedience because that helps to gird and strengthen the breastplate of righteousness or to even put it on us. How many times has... i, I tell you what the devil's in the habit of doing. He makes accusations all the time, especially when we sin, but he also makes them when we don't. The devil is really tricky. He is constantly trying to nail me on sin that I don't commit. Have you ever experienced what I'm talking about here? Like, you'll have a conversation with somebody and you'll come out of it and go, wow, I really think that I could have worded that differently and I shouldn't have said this and I believe I may have sinned and, and all that. And you come out of it and you really start pondering it. And then you realize it's spiritual warfare. I didn't say anything out of line with that person. I, I didn't... I didn't respond to that person in a way that was illicit or wrong or sinful? How many times has the devil come and made accusations against you when you weren't actually in sin? You know, he, he does it through doubts and these various things too. It doesn't have to be just sin related. It can be he can comes to you and accuses you of not being a believer just for GP, general purpose. I mean, he is so crafty, he does these things. And I think that when you're doing your best in the power of the Spirit to walk in righteousness and to obey God, that becomes a shield against his accusations. Not the imputed, but it's the practical righteousness. You're telling me I do this, this, and this, but I'll tell you what I've done today, devil. I've done this, this, and this. You see? Yeah. Now, how can you possibly defend yourself against all of his accusations if you're just walking in flagrant habitual sin? You have no breastplate of righteousness to stand on except the imputed. You don't have practical righteousness. You should be able to say to the devil, breastplate of righteousness has to do with saying to him, you're wrong, you're accusing me of something that I did not do. I know what I was about today. I know what I was about in that conversation with that person. I think before Christ, uh, we sinned so much that we didn't even keep records on it that some of that we feel like we're still sinning in some of those same ways after we've been saved when we're actually not sinning in that way at all. It's just pre-existing guilt, things that are there. And so he is a wicked accuser, and this breastplate protects us against it, but it's not just the imputed righteousness. When he comes at you, I've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. I've been clothed in his righteousness. Your accusations are nothing. They mean nothing. They're futile. But I also walk in daily obedience as best I can, and so that, too, is part of the breastplate. So you must remember that. Three, shoes for your feet, verse 15 and as shoes for your feet, his words, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Since the average ancient soldier marched on rough, hot roads, climbed over jagged rocks, trampled over thorns, and waded through stream beds of jagged stones and these various things, his feet needed to have a lot of protection in these days. Uh, a soldier whose feet were blistered, you know, cut, swollen, uh, man, if his feet were in bad shape, he could not fight well. He really couldn't stand well. How can you stand and fight if your feet aren't in good condition, right? It reminds me, I think, that I might be developing or have developed a bone spur 
because once in a while I'll step a certain way and whew, it just sends me through the roof. Anyone else had that issue or something going on in there? Just me and Bruce, and Bruce is almost twice my age. What does that say about me? You've got great genetics if you're dealing with it now, brother. My genetics are pathetic because I'm only 45 years old. Uh, but I tell you, you're just walking all of a sudden, ah! I mean, it, it's unbelievable how much pain. But think about a soldier. If his feet aren't well taken care of, how is he going to stand? How is he going to fight? How is he going to march worth of beans? He's not going to. Now, the shoes of a Roman soldier, because they really didn't have combat boots back in those days. They, they wore sandals, and I can't even imagine fighting in sandals. I wore flip-flops all the time. Can't do a whole lot. You know, you definitely can't walk backwards because they come off. Uh, so I don't know how, but their sandals had straps, and they strapped onto the foot, and they were usually um, impregnated, if you will, with uh, different pieces of metal and things on the sole so they could get a good grip. And obviously they didn't have Nikes and things like that that have a good grip. So they would put things, line the sole with different objects and things like that that would give them a really good grip so they could climb, so they could run, so they could charge, so they could stand their ground. Yeah, it was, uh, even little pieces of metal and nails were driven into the soles of their shoes, not to the point where it come through and penetrate their foot. But that's how the shoes were made for battle back then. That was your your war boot, if you would, and if you will, and that's what gave them stability on the battlefield. A Christian's spiritual footwear is equally important in his warfare against the schemes of the devil. If he has carefully fastened on the belt of truth and put on the breastplate of righteousness, but does not properly shod his feet with the readiness given by the gospel of peace, he is destined to stumble, fall, and suffer many defeats. A readiness is an interesting word. It's hetoi mysia in Greek, which generally means preparation. And so instead of uh, readiness, maybe in some of your translations, it, if you use a different translation than the ESV, it would say preparation there. A good pair of boots allowed the soldier to be prepared, right, to march, to climb, to fight, or to do whatever else was necessary at a moment's notice, right? I mean, think about it. You, had, you almost had to have these shoes on all the time. If you were out at war, you couldn't take them off in the middle of the night and get into your tent and get into your sleeping bag. You had to have them on because your camp could get raided. So you had to have these things on. That's how you're prepared. Now, I would say this, that Christ demands the same readiness of his people. He does. And it's not with a pair of shoes per se, but it's with the gospel of peace that we must be ready with the gospel to be able to stand firm and to, to fight. The gospel of peace refers to the good news that believers are at peace with God. The unsaved person, uh, the unsaved person is essentially helpless, ungodly, sinful, and an enemy of God, Romans 5, 6 through 10. But the saved person, on the other hand, is reconciled to God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. That's Romans 5, 10 through 11 and 2 Corinthians 5, 20 to 21. The gospel of peace is the marvelous truth that in Christ we are now at peace with God and are one with him. Now you just think about that. Having those shoes on for the Christian has to do with believing the gospel and primarily believing that we are at peace with 
God. And what does the devil do? He comes to us and he he attacks us and says, your sin and these things, you're at war with God because of your behavior, because of these sorts of things. And the gospel says the believer is no longer at war with God, that he has eternal, everlasting peace with God. That's what the gospel brings to us, ultimately peace with God. And so it's like putting on as shoes that understanding and those doctrines of the gospel. I'm at peace with God. Even though I'm in the midst of spiritual warfare or even physical warfare, whatever these things are we're experiencing in life or a tumultuous relationship, I'm at peace with God. Therefore, I can have peace with others. I'm putting on the shoes, if you will. When our feet are shod with the readiness of the gospel, we stand in the confidence of God's love for us, his union with us, and his commitment to fight for us. The believer who stands in the Lord's power need not fear any enemy, beloved, any enemy, even the devil himself, even the devil himself. When he comes to attack us, our feet are rooted firmly on the solid ground of the gospel at peace. And I'll tell you what, that's got to be one of the best parts of the gospel itself, having peace with God. It really does. Put those shoes on. I'm at peace with God. And even though I'm in the midst of a tumultuous situation or in the midst of spiritual warfare, none of that, none of the stuff that I'm experiencing changes the peace that I have with God through Jesus Christ. Amen? Can I get an amen? Because I tell you what, when you're living Christian life is hard and when you're trying to walk in a manner worthy and you're trying to believe all the stuff that we're called to do, it just seems like we don't have peace at times. And the devil comes and he says, you do not have it. Look at you. Look at you, and look at what you're doing. And we do have it, right? We have the shoes. Four, the shield of faith, verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. I love that verse. The Roman soldier had two kinds of shields. There was a small round one that he would use in hand-to-hand combat. It was small round. It allowed him to maneuver very quickly. It was probably a foot and a half or so, maybe two foot in diameter. Had a couple of pieces of leather in it. He put his arm through one and grabbed another and he could deflect and he could move, you know, very freely with it. It's, it's like the close uh, person-to-person hand-to-hand combat. There was one type of shield they had and then there was the large oblong one he would use when he was uh, maybe holding a position or advancing into battle with his fellow soldiers. The second shield, the one Paul refers to here, was about, and that's what he's talking about when he says shield here, it was about four feet tall, maybe four and a half feet tall, uh, and it was about two and a half feet wide. One of the commentators I was reading likened it to a door. (laughs) Can you imagine walking around with that door? You're going to be well protected. You're going to have a Popeye arm, the one that's holding it up. But I tell you what, it was, he kind of likened it. It was like carrying around a door with you, if you can believe that. It was huge. Not only was it large, but it, was covered, it, it basically covered the entire soldier's body, and it would have been covered with certain things, too, that would help it resist uh, impact from arrows and darts and these sorts of things or, or blows and stuff like that. Now, Soldiers would use these, and what they would do is they would stand in rows with these huge shields, okay? And uh, when they all lined up, what the enemy saw was literally like a wall of doors, a wall of shields. So if you can imagine, you're on the battlefield, and you have 
100, 200, 300, 4,000 soldiers ahead of you, and all you see are these wood planks, and you don't even see soldiers behind it, it would, you would almost get the sense that, okay, we're going to have to scale that wall so we can get to the enemy. That's what it would have looked like. And I tell you what, it would have been extremely intimidating to think that, okay, whatever we fire at that and whatever we do with slashing, spears, pikes, sticks, and these things, it's not going to have much effect. Uh, literally, these advancing columns in the Roman army were called phalanxes, and, and they were literally the terror of Rome's foes. All of the enemies that came against Rome, and there were many, with the exception of the final battle with all of the uh, uh, barbarians that just sort of infested Rome and took it out, but in every other scenario, Rome would align its forces up with these shields, and the enemy on the other side would look at it and go, we're toast. They would be terrified by the sight of these shields and by these strong men holding these things. It was just, an, it must have been a sight to see. The shield of faith uh, does not have to do with a particular doctrine. We're talking about the spiritual implication for the Christian. It doesn't have to do with a particular doctrine or teaching um, of the Christian faith like the belt of truth, because I think the belt of truth has to do with believing in God and these sorts of things. So it's a little different. It's not a particular doctrine or anything. I think it has to do with a general confidence in God. So the shield of faith has to do with a general confidence in God. It has to do with believing that God can be trusted. And I think that's primary. Believing that God can be trusted. It's amazing that if you have this general belief in God, not only that he exists and all that, but that he can be trusted, that he comes through, that he is who he says, that he accomplishes all of his purposes and promises and all that, that becomes, in a sense, a shield of faith for the believer. That becomes the very thing that, that, that protects the believer as he marches daily in battle for the Lord Jesus. Paul says that that kind of basic faith, it literally becomes a shield against the enemy. Like a Roman soldier, our faith covers us so that no portion is exposed. And it also links up with the faith of other believers to create a solid wall of defense. Because I tell you what, on the Roman battlefield, what was intimidating wasn't one guy standing out there with a, holding a door. It was a wall of them, all of these Roman soldiers connected. And what strikes fear in the devil are all these believers linked arm in arm with the shield of faith, this belief in God and that he will prevail and protect in these sorts of things. So that's what Paul is driving at here. You have to have the community aspect to it here. When we link arms, we, the shield increases, if you will. So again... Like a Roman shield, our faith covers us that no portion is exposed. It links up with the faith of others to create a solid wall of defense. And when we become covered and linked up, our faith will be able to do what? Extinguish whatever fiery darts the enemy hurls at us, right? Because that's what it says in the text. It's only then that we have the belief in God that he will prevail, that he will protect, that he is who he is and that his promises are true and that we actually link up with other believers. So this isn't an isolated solo act. You've got to be linked up in order to be able to extinguish the darts of the enemy. That's what the Roman battlefield would have looked like. Like I said, one guy with a shield would not be able to def defend or beat a bunch of barbarians. I want you to also notice something here, how it says... All the fiery darts of the evil one. It does not say some of 
a portion of, select fiery darts. It says all of the fiery darts of the evil one. Now, I'll tell you, that plays right into 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which says, no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful, right? Because that has to do with the shield of faith, believing that he's faithful. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also, when that temptation comes from the enemy, he will also provide the way of escape that you may may be able to what? Endure it, get past it, prevail, persevere. Now, God knows. God knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what we're facing. He knows what we're going through. He knows what we're headed for. He knows that we will be tempted in various ways. He knows this. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, what I just read, it says that he will provide a way of escape. Now, according to Ephesians 6, 16, the text we've been studying, what is the way of escape? It is the shield of faith. It is the sh- I've always wondered what 1 Corinthians 10, 13, what is the way of escape? Is it that he'll open up an avenue that I can walk away from that temptation and all that? I think what he's talking about here is he's talking about Ephesians 6, 16. It is the shield of faith. Why? Because the shield of faith alone is what extinguishes the devil's fiery darts. And what are his fiery darts? Temptations. That's what he hurls at us. They're arrows of temptation. So what happens here? God delivers us from temptation by shielding us from it when we do what? When we take up the shield of faith. There's your meaning of 1 Corinthians 10, 13 and the broader meaning of 6, 16 of Ephesians. What a powerful, powerful, uh, I would say, defense mechanism this shield of faith is against temptation and the darts of the enemy. But keep in mind, You've got to believe and trust God, believe in his promises, and you've got to link arms with other believers. You've got to do it. You've got to do it. And this is why I'm such a stickler for tending church and being a part of the fellowship, because when we don't do that, man, I'll tell you what, we, we not only become weakened in our own personal faith, but we become, the devil puts his scope on us. Man, he, he zooms us in. He has a demon check for windage, right, Keith? We were talking about that. Okay, you need to move that round over a little bit to the left. He gets you. He nails you. Man, you can't be by yourself. Think of a a pack of wildebeest. Not that I would like to liken myself or us to wildebeest, but they travel in packs of 100,000, and that's a pretty mighty force when there's a lone lion or a couple of them out there trying to get it. But you get one wildebeest by himself, goodbye. Same thing in the church. A little different, but same thing. We've got to link arms with one another if we are to really and truly, in the broadest sense, to this passage, in accordance with this passage, the right interpretation, we've got to link arms if we're going to take up the shield of faith and prevail against all of these temptations. We've got to do it. MacArthur said this. He said, the devil continually bombards God's children with the fiery darts of immorality, right? He's always tempting us, be immoral, do this, do that, stare at her too long, enter into lust, do this, do that, get drunk, do these things. He's always hammering us with every form of immorality. He's always whispering, do it, it feels good, it's great, it's good for you, I promise, right? If it feels good, it can't be wrong. These are the things that he's trying to persuade us all the time. He tempts us with immorality, fires the dart of hatred. You need to hate that guy. He's terrible. He's ridiculous. Look what he did to you. He tries to get us to hate. That's a temptation. He's always tempting us to be angry and not in a, in a righteous way where we get upset about the things of God and then we respond in truth and love. He's always trying to get us angry because he convinces us that we're the center of the universe 
And every time somebody offends us or does something, which is like every 10 minutes, get angry, get mad, walk around in anger, and, and, and plan something against them. Get strategic. Let's get some malice going. He tempts us with that. He tempts us with covetousness, does he not? Man, look at the car that guy drives. You drive a Sienna. You're not even a man, Phil, right? You need, you need that. You need this. And I think that's probably a, you know, I don't know. I don't wrestle with that anymore. But how, do, how else does he not? Okay, here's one for me. Let me tell you how I wrestle with covetous. I take a look at a church and I say, man, I certainly wish our church was that big. I certainly wish our, you know, covetousness. Wanting what somebody else has, being envious to the point of truly desiring that, and even in some cases in the church, manipulating scenarios to make growth happen in these things so I can be like that guy, which I vowed not to do. It's a temptation. It's a temptation. You, you, you're never going to be satisfied unless you've got a lot of people in your church. You're never going to be, you need to be like that guy. You need, to be like, you need to read his books and be like him. And you need to, and how does he do it to you? My, my old boss in the front row, Carl, he's a business owner, and you know maybe a, a covetous temptation would be, you need to be like this store down the street that does way more money than you and, you know, and all that. It could be. I mean, we're just tempted constantly to want what others have, to reach their status, their level, to have their possessions and things. He, he's constantly bombarding us with those fiery darts. And how about pride? You're the center of the universe. You're what's most important. You know, you're worth it. Right, I, I tell you, man, these these ads. They're, I think they're primarily geared towards women. You know, all the makeup ads and clothing and all that. Man, I just, I need to pray for my sisters in the Lord because it's like every other commercial is like you're not good enough because you don't look like her, and this is what you you need to get liposuction. You take your first pill, you lose ninety pounds. <laughs> You'll be in bed for six months, but you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, don't do it. You know, don't do it. Uh, just it, pride, you know, you're not this and that. And it, 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 all the ads and the devil, he's always working on our pride. We're all prideful. Let's just all admit, anyone who says he isn't prideful, he's the most prideful person in the conversation. We're all prideful, and the devil is constantly coming and trying to appeal to the pride, trying to speak to the pride. How about doubt? That's a fiery dart all the time. Again, you sinned, you're not a believer, look at you, you're a mess, you're an idiot, just follow me, it'll be better. Give up. Give up, give up. Did God really say this, right? Did God really say stay away from that tree? Did he say that? Is that what he meant? You know, if you take the fruit and eat it, you should be as God. Come on, do that. You know, constantly doubting the scripture, doubting God's word, God, doubting God's promises, doubting our identity. I'm saved, I'm redeemed, I'm accepted. Nothing can change that. Doubt, doubt, doubt. Fear, that's huge. Fear is huge massive. I don't know where that next paycheck's going to come from. I don't know what we're going to do here. I don't know what we're gonna, what's going to happen. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. He's just constantly just slinging these darts, despair, distrust, and a whole multitude, cadre of other temptations constantly. Why does he fire all these things at us? MacArthur says he does this to try to cause believers to forsake their trust in God and to drive a wedge between the Savior and the saved. And then he says this, take up the shield of faith and that won't happen to you. I love it. Number five, the helmet of salvation, verse 17a, and take up the helmet of salvation. The helmet was one of the Roman soldier's most important pieces of armor without which he would never enter battle, never. He would never go out there without it. If he did, he wasn't going to last. The purpose of the helmet was to protect his head from injury, obviously, particularly from the 
dangerous broadsword, sword, sword, I hate the W in that, I always try to pronounce it, sword, the dangerous broadsword, the W is silent, commonly used in warfare that day. So Romans used a couple of different types of swords, but the enemy used, usually used these big four-foot-long suckers. They were just extremely intimidating. It was often carried by cavalrymen, you know, the guys that uh, rode horses and things, and what they would do is they'd ride up on their horse and they would swing this broad sword, this massive sword at the heads of their enemies to try to split their skulls or even to decapitate them. That's what the enemy did. Now, Paul knew that the devil seeks to strike blows against a believer's mind, against the believer's head, and that is why he pointed to the helmet of salvation here. Okay, the, the devil attacks us in a multitude of ways, physically, spiritually, emotionally, but he really goes after our head. He really goes after our thinking. He really goes after our understanding. And the helmet of salvation protects us against the devil's discouraging attacks. Uh, to discourage us, the devil points to our failures, our sins, unresolved problems, our poor health, or whatever else seems negative in our lives. Discouragement can obviously lead to doubt, uh, doubt about the truth, doubt about God, and even doubt about our salvation. Now, the good news is, is that salvation, biblical salvation, what we're talking about here, is not based upon our performance. It's not based upon what we do. It's not based upon our performance. It's not based upon our good deeds. It's based upon Christ's performance, Okay? If salvation was based on our performance, I tell you what, this guy would lose it two minutes after I got it. I, it'd be gone. I love what R.C. Sproul said. He said, if salvation depended on us, we would have lost it 15 minutes after we got saved. Because right there, we just digress and revert back to some kind of a sinful pattern, and, and we're, not, yeah, we're, not making the, we're not doing the right deeds. We're not earning. You know, We're not doing the right thing. If it were based on our performance, we would lose it because we sin all the time. And I'll tell you what, if this were true, the devil would literally have power over us. He would. He wouldn't be accusing us. He would be speaking the truth every time we sin. Look at that. In fact, he wouldn't even say anything. He'd let us just continue to sin and to fall and to fall and to fall, would he not? I'll tell you, we are lousy performers when it comes to righteousness. Can I get a witness? Can I get an amen? Amen. Somebody in here is going, not me. <laughs> Didn't know we had a Pharisee in the room, right? We are lousy performers when it comes to righteousness. Let's just be honest, right? I'd be the chief of lousy, you know. But since salvation is based upon the perfect performance and righteousness of Christ, it is eternally secure and untouchable. It is what we call in theology immutable, unchanging. Can't be touched. It's secure, it's safe, it's done. Now, the helmet of salvation has to do with believing these rock-solid biblical truths about salvation and also resting in them. When the devil hurls his fiery darts of discouragement and doubt at your head, the helmet of salvation will repel them, thus keeping your assurance of salvation intact. And I'll just comment on that a little bit more. Have you met a timid Christian, one who doubts whether he's saved or not? Obviously, he's not putting this helmet on. It is possible to be a believer and, and to be caught up in sin or whatever it is and to just be very timid in your spirit and to doubt that you are truly saved, especially when you sin. I've met many Christians like this. And I tell you what, you need to put this helmet on. You need to put these doctrines on. You're saved. 
It's over. It's secured in Christ. It's forever. It's not contingent on what you do or on your performance. It's based on Christ's performance. The only man to ever live a perfect life and obey God's law perfectly and to earn a perfect righteous standing. Adam did it for a little while and then he failed. And Jesus is the second Adam who came and was tempted in every way, even as Adam was, and he secured the victory. He fulfilled, he went through, he never breached, he never broke God's law, he earned the righteousness. Our salvation is based on his merits, not on ours. That's the helmet of salvation. So when the enemy comes, you can't be, it can't be, it can't be true. You can lose it. I've met Christians who believe you can lose your salvation. That's one where I would question whether they're a real believer or not. Because you cannot lose it. How can you lose what God has done for you? You must have a low view of God. Because maybe he's not sovereign. Maybe he's not all-powerful. Maybe he's not all-known. Maybe, he, maybe he's just incapable of really locking us into this thing. Put that helmet on and be victorious. Lastly, the sword of the Spirit, verse 17b. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The principal weapon carried by, a Roman, by Roman foot soldiers was the... Uh, I think it's Machaira. Okay, that's how you'd pronounce it in Greek, Machaira. Uh, a short, double-edged sword uh, designed for close-quarter fighting, which was carried in a sheath or scabbard attached to their belts. The sword of the Spirit is our final piece of armor, and it is the only one that is actually intended for both defense and offense. Okay, you can block with it because it's close-quarter battle, but you can also plunge and slash and do some damage. It's a melee weapon, if you will. Notice how Paul called the sword of the Spirit the Word of God. Look at that. In order to understand Paul's teaching here, we need to know that the, uh, that the word used for word in the phrase, the Word of God, is not logos, the most common term used in such a phrase, but the word rima, which is quite different, okay? R-H-E-M-A. Logos is a very common, it's the highest word in Scripture for the word word. You see it in John 1 in these places. This is not the word he used here. He used rima, it's different. Lagos, as I said, is the most exalted word. It is the word the Apostle John used with such effect in the opening chapter of his gospel saying, in the beginning was the Lagos, the word, and the Lagos, the word, was with God, and the Lagos, word, was God, and the Lagos became flesh and dwelt among us. You get the point, John 1.1, John 1.14. In John's prologue, Lagos refers to nothing less than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God's full and final word, Lagos, to mankind. Rima is not like that, it's different. While Lagos embraces nearly everything, Rima has a slighter weight to it. It really means a saying. In this case, a particular or specific portion of God's written revelation. Uh, I would say John 3.16 is a Rima. Okay, that's a saying we're all familiar with. Romans 3.23 is a rima. You get the point. The so, so the sword of the Spirit, okay, has to do with using a particular passage or verse from the Bible, a rima, to either defend against the devil or to make an attack against the devil. All right? In Matthew 4, cha uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, we read about the temptation of Jesus, uh, uh, you know, uh, at Jesus' baptism, God declared, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And right after this, Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, right? You've read it. 
The devil came to Jesus and tempted him to question the infallibility and sufficiency of God's word. The devil said to him, if you really believe you are the son of God. Okay, God said, this is my son. And the devil came and said, if, if you are the son... If you believe you are son, there's the temptation. The temptation wasn't in making bread or any of those things. Jesus could have done that. It was in doubting in the sufficiency and infallibility of God's word. God had declared over him during his baptism, you're, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Right? And the devil comes and says, if you're the son of God, if you truly believe that, then tell these rocks to become bread so you can eat. Because I know you're hungry. 40 days, 40 nights without food and water. Pretty tough. Jesus, however, when the tempter came and tempted him to doubt in the sufficiency and infallibility, the truthfulness of God's word, if and you are, Jesus was armed with what? The sword of the Spirit. He reached for his scabbard and he drew a rima from Scripture. Deuteronomy 8.3, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth or comes from the mouth of God. That's a rima. That's a rima. According to Matthew 4, the devil what? He hurled two more temptations at, at Jesus, but the Lord defended himself with more verses, more remas, right? And then in verse 11, it says, then the devil left him. In all scripture, there is no better example of the power of specific sayings, rima, of the word of God to turn the devil aside and preserve the one who is being tempted. There isn't a better example. James Montgomery Boyce wrote this. He said, let me put it very directly. Here is Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of Almighty God, the one in whom neither Satan nor man could find any wrong or gain even the tiniest foothold, whose eyes were always on the glory of God, the glory of God the Father, and who always lived in the closest possible communion with Him. If this Jesus your Lord and Savior had to know Scripture in order to resist Satan and win a victory over him. How much more do you and I need, to, to, need it to win a victory over the devil? We're talking about God. We're talking about the Son of God. We're talking about Jesus. He had to have a sheath full of remas to defend himself. How much more would we, who are not Jesus, need to have that to be armed in that way? It's a great point that he makes. He says, he says this, well... I have a general idea of the, what the Bible is about. I kind of know what it's about. I believe that the Bible is God's word. And he says this, that is good. I do not want to discount that in the slightest, but it is not enough. It is not enough. According to Ephesians 6.17, you must know the specific sayings of Scripture. You must have them memorized if you are to resist and overcome the devil successfully. Having the sword of the Spirit has to do with having particular verses memorized as a defense and offense against the devil when he comes with his temptation. You can't just have a general idea of Scripture. You need to get some things down, and when the tempter comes, you need to declare those things before him. And what will happen with him? He will flee from you just as he did Jesus. Now, bear in mind that it took three attempts with Jesus. He may not go right away. Taking up the sword of the Spirit has to do with taking in the Word of God, okay? More specifically, memorizing the rima, the sayings of Scripture, building a good arsenal of verses that you can use when the tempter comes. He's, and Boyce said this, he says, the devil will not flee from us simply because we tell him to. You know what, you dirty devil, hit the road. He laughs when we say that to him. 
Oh, really? You want me to hit the road? Based on what authority and power? Yours? You're terrible. You're worthless. No, he says this. He will retreat only before the power of God as God himself speaks his words through us in the midst of the temptation. The remas are God's word and God's authority and God's power. When you speak those things in those moments, God himself is telling the devil to hit the road. And the devil, I think, in all of creation is only afraid of God. And he certainly doesn't act like he is, but he is. It is the word of God, the Bible, that is what? Living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, right? Hebrews 10, 12. Next section, we're going to keep moving fast. Secret weapon. We have a secret weapon. It's listed here, verses 18 to 20. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Prayer is our secret weapon. Why? Why is it a secret weapon? Because it is the comm link which connects us directly to God. That's it. If you're on the battlefield, you need a link. You need a comm link. You need communication with the head, with, with the general who's calling the shots, or with somebody who can give you direction and all that. And prayer is like that for the believer, for the soldier of Christ. Okay? It is the comm link which connects us directly to God. And who is God? He's our redeemer. He's our salvation. He is our rock. He is our defender. He is our protector. He is our provider. He is our strength. He, he is the one who dispatches angels. As it said in that song, he's the God of angel armies, right? Jesus said, I could summon 12 legions of angels right now to defend myself if I decided to, or 10 legions of angels, thousands and thousands, a hundred and some thousand. He is the God of angel armies. He, he is God who is all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful. He is God who has won the war against the devil, right? The big picture, the war has been won against the devil and demons through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does prayer do? It connects us to this God. So I don't really think that prayer is our secret weapon. It connects us to our secret weapon, which is God himself. It's very important that we do not miss what Paul is saying here. I just have to confess, I like to play video games here and there. And uh, I play a game called Fallout 4. And uh, my sons are like, oh, my daddy's preaching to me right now. I love it. Because um, they love these things too. And I play this game called Fallout 4 on my Xbox. And there is a thing on this game that you can come across called power armor. And if you, when you find it, you, you need to take it. And put it on for a little while and then store it somewhere. And whenever you find power armor, you got to take it. It's, it's really, really tough stuff. And you can take a lot of damage when, when you have it on, and you can also dish it out. Okay? So it's like this full armor suit with a helmet and all this stuff. And it, it's, it's pretty, pretty, pretty neat stuff to put on because, you know, you got enemies coming and they're like bouncing off of you. I love it. I, I love it. Now, on the back of the power armor, there is a port, right? There is a port in the back where you plug in what's called a fusion core, okay? That's what powers up the suit, all right? With a fusion core in place, you can access all of your power armor's features. You can move quickly. You can jump off buildings. I mean, there's really, it's almost like you become Superman when you have the power suit on and when you have the fusion core in place, right? But if you remove the fusion core 
or if it runs out of juice, which is absolutely horrible, especially when you're in the midst of a battle, you lose almost all the features and it becomes like a giant land anchor. It's like, you know, before you're like, you know, you're like a marathon guy, but when you run out of power or you don't have a power, you don't have the fusion core, it's, un, it's just a big, it just, it just, it's a terrible, terrible thing that happens. I hate it when that happens. I always keep a lot of fusion cores on me. Becomes an anchor. And you take a ton of damage with it. It's almost like you don't have it on. In fact, it's better to get out of the suit and run for your life. Right? You've got hordes of things coming at you. It's like, don't stand there in that thing. Take it a swing, you know? It's horrible. Now, in a similar way, in a similar way, prayer is our armor's fusion core. It is. With it in place, the Christian's armor, the believer's armor, becomes fully functional. It provides maximum protection. It's a great parallel. My wife's like, do not talk about a video game. (laughs) And I did it anyways. It shows you how much I submit to her. I'll tell you what, though. You remove prayer from the armor of God, and what does that armor become? A boat anchor. It doesn't function. Our lives, friends, do not function without being tethered and connected to our Heavenly Father, who is the source of everything that we need. You break that link, you sever that conduit, no power. You, you got the armor on? I doubt you'd even have the armor on if you're not praying, but if you do somehow, it's like, oh, I can't, oh, oh yeah, you know, you can't. You can't function without it. You've got to have Prayer, it is so essential. This is why Paul brought it into this subject here. This is why he brought it into the passage. Hey, you're putting all this armor on Ephesians? That's good. It's going to be hard to live the Christian life. But let me tell you something. Without prayer, you're getting nowhere. You're getting nowhere. You need the fusion core. You need God himself. As I stated last week, I know Paul. I'm pretty sure Paul was chained to a Roman soldier. He's looking, you know, he's looking at this soldier's armor, and he's, he's you know, easily impressed with the armor, and, and that's why he's referencing it in this text. You know, he was impressed with his armor, he was impressed with his, his appearance and all of that, but Paul knew as he began to think, how could this illustration work for the Ephesian believers and all Christians? He knew that no matter how impressive that Roman's armor was or how impressive our spiritual armor is, it's useless without prayer. It's useless without the power of God being distributed to us through prayer, through speaking to God, through listening to God, and those sorts of things. Paul knew that. You know, this Roman's so impressive, but apart from Christ, he's nobody. Apart from prayer, that armor is nothing. It's the same thing for us. It applies to us. Now, I want you to notice really quickly, and I'm probably going to go just a little bit longer today, so bear with me. I want you to notice very quickly that uh, Paul included something very important for us to notice here. Uh, and it would be the procedure of prayer in verse 18a. This is how Paul tells us to pray what? He says we are to pray in the Spirit, right? So it's not just that you have to have prayer for the armor to function right and for you to be protected and for you to make a good offense and defense. You're, you're to pray in a particular way. You're to pray in the Spirit. What does that have to do with? That means don't write out all your prayers and script them. It means you start praying in the Spirit. Let the Spirit lead your prayer time. You, you let the Spirit lead your time of prayer. You call upon God. Holy Spirit, 
lead this time and speak to me. And he will begin to speak to you and direct you and guide you. So you've got to be praying in the Spirit. We are to pray what? At all times, it says right there, right? Okay, that's good times. That's bad times. That's ugly times. That's in spiritual warfare, which is really going on all the time, but that's when you really sense it, and that's when you really don't sense it. That's when you're at the top of the mountain. Things are going great, victory after victory. You better be praying like crazy. And that's when you're suffering defeat right now. Things are happening. You know, you're, you're not getting to where you want to be, or the devil's hanging you up or whatever. You'd be praying during those times, and the ugly times when you just fail, when you blow it, when you sin. you got to be praying at all times. Third, with all prayer, with all prayer. That's not, what he means there is not just one particular type of prayer like, bless this food to our bodies. Uh, that's good prayer, but you, know, you should be praying before you eat, but that shouldn't be the only prayer you're doing. With all prayer, I like that Acts model, right? Acts stands for adoration. You're just proclaiming God's excellency in prayer and who he is and how awesome he is. And then the C stands for confession. You're confessing your sin. And then T stands for thanksgiving. You're thanking the Lord for who he is and what he's done, what he's going to do and all that. You're thanking him for everything. And then you have the S, which is supplication. And that leads us to number four. We are to pray what? Supplication. You see it right there. Supplication is our needs and the needs of others. So much of our prayers today are just about supplication and we're constantly begging God for certain things for us or for others when we need to be adoring him and we need to be confessing and we need to be thanking him and we need to supplicate for ourselves and for others. That is how we pray. That is what strengthens and empowers our lives and our armor is to pray in those ways and all those things. I also want you to notice the preparation of prayer in verse 18. Prayer literally prepares us and other believers for battle. It prepares us in that it helps us to what? Keep alert. Prayer is what keeps you watchful and alert to the devil's schemes. It really does. Scripture study and all that helps too, but prayer is one of the number one things. I'm reminded of the night of Jesus' arrest. Jesus went to his disciples who had probably been up for a couple of days. You really can't blame them. They were very tired and they were falling asleep and you know, dozing off. And Jesus came to them and said, you know what, guys? Peter, you guys need to remain awake and you need to watch and pray. Why? So that you do not succumb to temptation. You need to watch and pray so that you do not give in to temptation. And what he was saying there is, it's coming, and you better be ready for it, right? And what happened? They fell asleep. A little later, when they, you know, the temple guards and stuff came to arrest Jesus, they succumbed to that temptation. How? By abandoning Jesus, running for their lives into the, into the orchard, right? As Jesus was being arrested, Peter was the only one who stayed put, but later that night, he blew it big time. I have no idea who Jesus of Nazareth is, young bondservant lady. I have, he denied him three times. He succumbed to the temptation of denying the Lord Jesus. Why? Because he wasn't prayerful and he wasn't watchful. So prayer, we supplicate, we do all these things, but in a huge way, it makes us alert to what's going on around us. I would say this, prayer is our spiritual eyes and ears. That's what helps us to know what's going on around us because the Spirit, if you're praying in the Spirit, the Spirit will let you know. He will speak to you. And Peter learned a really hard lesson that night, didn't he? He wrote 1 Peter 5.8. He says this to the people he was writing to. This is after the fact. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Don't do what I did. There's your fill translation. Don't do what I did. Your adversary, the devil, does what? He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Guess what? 
church. I got devoured in the Garden of Gethsemane. I got eaten up. Well, actually, I got eaten up. I did get eaten up there, too, because I slashed a guy's ear off. And then after that, that night, I denied the Lord three times. I wasn't watchful. I wasn't prayerful. I succumbed to his temptation. Prayer helps to gird us and protect us against those things. And, and this alertness uh, that prayer causes us to be alert, it, it leads to readiness. And readiness leads to what? Perseverance. Just think about it. If we are alert, then we will be ready when the devil comes. And if we are ready, we will be able to stand against his schemes, temptations, and attacks. And what? Persevere through them. Be victorious. We are to not only pray for ourselves, but to make supplication for all the saints, he says. Okay, praying for the saints to be strengthened and ready and alert for the devil's attacks. What does that do? It helps to prepare them and to ready our fellow brothers and sisters for the battle. But in order to do so, we need to know a few things about them. If we want to pray for Christians in China, North Korea, or Sudan, we need to know what they're dealing with there. We need to, you know, if we want to pray for certain brothers and sisters here at RHC, we need to know what's going on with them as well. We can pray for our brothers and sisters in a general way, which is better than not praying for them at all, but having specifics will help us pray much more effectively. And Paul gives an example of what it means to pray for and what it looks like to pray for. Just trying to get through this as quickly as I can. Verses 19 to 20. He says, so that you may also know how I am and, and doing uh, to Kikos. Oh, actually, no, let me go back a little bit. Let me go back to verse 19 and 20. Paul asked them to pray specifically for him in two ways, giving them an example of how to pray for other believers. Pray what? That the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Secondly, pray for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may what? Declare it boldly as I ought to speak. It's amazing that somebody like the Apostle Paul would want believers to pray that he would be bold when he is probably one of the most bold Christians I've ever seen in the Bible. And I'll tell you this, what made him bold was Christians praying for him. It wasn't him. It was the Lord too. Section three, lastly, Paul's final greetings. We're done. So that you may also know how I am and what I am doing to Kikos, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who, uh, who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. What we see here, just lastly, is Paul sent one of his most trusted companions to Ephesus. His name was Tuchikos. Uh, he was originally from somewhere in Asia Minor and had heard Paul preach the gospel and became a believer. And he and his friend Trophimus accompanied Paul during part of his third missionary journey and went to uh, Jerusalem with him. Um, Tuchikos remained with Paul during his incarceration in Rome. Paul had a good, trusty, trusty, trustworthy friend, if you will, there with him in Tuchikos. Paul actually trained Tuchikos and became, and he became a faithful minister in the Lord. Paul sent Tuchikos to Ephesus for three reasons. To deliver Paul's letter. He's the one that brought this Ephesian letter to the Ephesians. He's the one that brought the one to Colossae too. Uh, to give a report about Paul so that the Ephesians could pray what? More specifically for him and to encourage their hearts. And then the very last thing we see is that Paul concluded Ephesians with a beautiful benediction in verses 23 and 24, where he summarized the great themes of his epistle. What are they? Peace, love, 